I think for us sitting in the pre-seed stage, we really haven't changed our pace. But for companies in the portfolio who are raising seed and plus, we've definitely noticed a slowdown in processes. I do think valuations are coming down as public markets valuations come down. You kind of have that cascading effect from the public markets all the way down through the different private stages. And normally it's like a six month lag. And I think we're starting to really see that kick in. We're also in the lull of summer where things tend to slow down a little bit on the deal making side. So this is pretty consistent with what we're seeing in market. Welcome to Brave. Learn from Southeast Asia's best tech leaders. Build the future, learn from our past, and stay human in between. No BS on success. I'm Jeremy Al, venture capitalist, serial founder, Harvard MBA, science fiction nerd, and dad of two daughters. Every week, we debate startup news, interview changemakers, answer listener questions, and share personal insights. Join our movement of over 20,000 members and get transcripts, resources, and community at www.braveseah.com. Say hello to Basket, transforming Indonesia's supply chains and redefining what's possible in commerce. Basket sees the untapped potential in over 200,000 distributors and wholesalers. This startup merges tradition with innovation, technology, and financial support. They are not looking to disrupt, they are here to collaborate. The results are modernized operations, streamlined supply chains, and a win-win for manufacturers and consumers alike. Learn more at www.basket.app. Hey, Shuyed, morning. Morning, Jeremy. I feel like I'm just seeing you every day this week. You did throw a very nice party at the Hustle Fund, your quarterly friends mixer that you mentioned last week. It was good. It was nice to hang out. Everyone was raving about the wine, so. I just heard complaints from you about the food, Jeremy. Not I just enough. My carbs. Yeah, not enough carbs. Too much Atas finger food. I know, right? You know, I just want my, you know, the cheapest carb, which is fried rice, the cheapest protein, which is chicken, probably sweet and sour. That's always easy. And then the cheapest vegetable, probably broccoli, right? There we go. It's a um, balanced meal right there. Well, anyway, it was really thanks to our sponsors, Google and yeah. Stripe, who provided the venue food and drinks. And so I can't Amazing. really take any credit for the quality of the wine, but yeah. I will give them that feedback. No, I mean, it was great feedback and a great session with Pantas, which is your carbon accounting portfolio company. So awesome to hear about his product market fit pivot. On that note, I just want to do a quick shout out to Steve Robbins. I think he just dialed in to provide some feedback about technical issues with the podcast and it was helpful because then we kind of in the midst of fixing it so thanks so much Steve Robbins for sharing that feedback she and I were just discussing and we want to kind of open up every episode if you have a quick question for us feel free to message it to us direct message us and we'll try to always answer them at the top of the podcast before we go into what's rest on that note I think the big news of the week I'm going to read out the article so I'm going to switch here so Dew Street Asia the headline is Southeast Asian startups record a 56% decline in funding in the first half of 2023. So here are a few quick facts that they said. So basically it's saying that right now startups have secured 403 equity deals with $4.2 billion in total proceeds in H1. But more importantly, they felt like there was an alarming 43% decrease in seed funding in the early stages. And it's also a factor where the median value of seed rounds is also declining. So on that note, obviously, we'll bring out some other facts from this article. But Ashian, what are your thoughts to what Andy Haswidi shared on Industry Asia? Yeah, I mean, I think it's 
interesting. I think for us sitting in the pre-seed stage, we really haven't changed our pace. But I think for companies in the portfolio who are raising seed and plus, we've definitely noticed a slowdown in processes. So I think that foots with kind of the high level findings of the article. I do think valuations are coming down. And that is, I think, something we've talked about on the podcast before. As public markets valuations come down, you kind of have that cascading effect from the public markets all the way down through the different private stages. And I think normally it's like a six month lag. And I think we're starting to really see that kick in. I think it'll probably continue to decline a little bit. We're also in the lull of summer where things tend to slow down a little bit on the deal making side. So this is pretty consistent with what we're seeing in market. Yeah. Here's another quote from Beacon VC Managing Director, Tanapong, who said corrections will persist in the next few quarters and that most private companies will eventually be subject to public market multiples. And he says more specifically, investors are very careful at evaluating any specific investments and are lengthening the decision-making time to reach a conclusion or prepare an investment case for the investment committee. This delay in the decision-making process may be at the expense of the survivability of many startups during this fundraising period. Yeah, I think the general rule is things always take longer than you think they're going to take. So if you're going to raise, you need to start sooner. And I think you need a plan B. You need to figure out is there a way you could get to cash flow break even faster in order to take control of your own destiny? And I think we're seeing that in good and bad ways. So in good ways in that people have been cutting a lot and some companies are finding like, hey, we were running a little bit too fat and actually we can achieve similar results on a much lower OPEX base. I think the bad is some people will cut in time and they're not going to make it. Yeah. And I think that's something that is a lot of founders are scratching their heads a little bit because there's a very kind of YC approach where it's just don't talk to any investors for a long period of time, focus on business. And then when you go talk to them, go talk to them in one go. And I think that advice works maybe at a YC demo day. But I think once out there, there's that conversation, which is how do you build a relationship with all the various VC funds without obviously creating a false start to the fundraising process on one end, but also letting you still focus on the business. I think that's where a lot of founders are scratching their head about how to balance that time as well. Yeah. You know, I think the advice that we give people is even if you're not actively raising, you should budget, let's say, an hour or an hour and a half of your time weekly to maintain relationships. Right. So you could think about that as two or three 30-minute calls where you are either meeting new investors or you're updating people you've met previously right. just to catch up on the business. Right. And so that gives you a warm list of leads to go out to when you do actually kick off your fundraise so that it's not the first time they've heard of you. And I think time boxing it basically helps you not let it overwhelm like what you're doing on the operational side and calendaring it basically keeps you disciplined to keep right. moving towards that. And I would say we do that on the fund side as well. We closed our fund last year. We're not raising a new fund for a while, but we do time box potential LP conversations weekly so that we can build up to a good warm list when we actually do go out and raise. Yeah. I think one advice I often share is like, hey, if they want to take you out for lunch or dinner, you might as well take it because if the VC is inviting you, they're probably going to pay for dinner or lunch. If not, it's kind of like a big no-no, I would say. So you might as well try to get a free meal out of it and oh, lower great. your personal burn. Focused on the food as always, I see, Jeremy. I'm very food motivated. <laughs> it's the same as my older child. But I mean, I'm just saying like, you know, you have to get a meal. And in retrospect, when I was a founder, I often ate a lot of my meals at my desk. In retrospect, I should have just taken that time just to meet somebody and eat. You I would know, you time have, box yeah. it because I think this is like the thing which is like people, they're always like, oh, I'm getting all this inbound from these associates. Like, yeah, 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 should yeah. I deal with, should I talk to them? Should I wait to talk to a partner? And I think just 
fixing something that you can do regularly yeah. helps you versus being working on someone else's schedule. As a founder, yeah. I think you want to basically be able to control your own schedule. Exactly. I wouldn't be doing like five lunches a week, for example, but time boxing it and being clear what kind of activity makes sense is really important. There's a, another quote here is Gary P. Kuang, a partner at Vertex Ventures, Southeast Asia, India, was looking at the Indonesian market and said that he felt like deal volumes are expected to come down following the macro headwinds and investor conservatism. But he says that he's optimistic cautiously for the end of 2023 and 2024 because he feels that the overall macro has somewhat improved over compared to last year, although there still could be black swan events that may happen. Well, we uh, that's covering all your bases, isn't it? <laughs> well, no, I, no, I think I, I resonate with that statement. I mean, I do feel like we're kind of at the bottom. I think in the US, I feel like some folks are starting to feel like, okay, deals are starting to come true from my perspective and from their perspective as well. So I feel like we're kind of at the bottom. We may continue to be stuck at the bottom for a little bit longer, but I do think it should improve by next year. So that's what my thinking is, Shane. I don't know what you think looking down the road. I have no confidence in predicting the future. So he's like, like, as like I, I predict carnage. And so you know, everything no, here no, is outside. No. Yeah. no, no, no. Like, Hope for the best, prepare for the worst. How would you structure that advice for founders who are planning to fundraise? So hope for the best, plan for the worst. Yeah. I mean, you know, so you're like, hey, I have 12 months of runway right now. I think I'm going to go start preparing to raise six months out. I think you just have to think about, okay, well, what if in six months when I start that race, either one, the business isn't doing as well as I thought it was going to, or two, like the fundraising environment continues to be pretty cold. What are my options? Knowing what your options are and how you would mitigate that is what I mean by prepare for the worst. And things just always take longer. People don't move on the timeline that you want them to. They move on their own timeline. So I think what's interesting was that I think Deal Street Asia put together this two by two, which was showing deal volume versus deal size. And I think they said that Singapore's regional leadership, quote unquote, remains uncontested. But Indonesia has faced a consistent decline in deal volume over the past four quarters. But Vietnam has started to see a resurgence of deal volume. And then Thailand has continued to see a drop in funding activity. So there's some numbers here, but those are the broad trends that's there. So Shane, what are the country original differences that you're seeing from your perspective? I mean, I think there's been a renewed interest in Vietnam, especially with the sort of nearshoring second country China alternatives initiatives. So I've always been pretty bullish on Vietnam. I like that market a lot. I think it has a lot of great things going for it. I wouldn't count Indonesia out. I mean, it's possible that deal volume is slowing, but, you know, it continues to be obviously the most populous country in Southeast Asia. The government is making a lot of investments into agriculture small business, supply chain. So I think there's still quite a lot of energy there. And so I think also just from like a sheer number of people who have been working in startups, I think there's just a lot of people with Indonesia experience who are coming out and starting new things. So I expect that to be a temporary lull. Yeah, the interest in Vietnam continues to be driven a lot by that nearshoring. I think there's some mixed news. The big one that came out recently was that Foxconn is going to be investing $250 million in two new projects in Vietnam targeting components for electric vehicles. So I think that's actually a huge investment because it's not just a direct, foreign direct investment in terms of capital, which is of course huge when you adjust it for purchasing power parity. But also I think it's bringing a lot of expertise because Foxconn also brings, you know, subcontractors. There's a lot of expertise around other components that will happen as a result. So I think it's going to be interesting where there's going to be accompanying consumption stimulus on one end, but also a lot of knowledge 
transfer from China to Vietnam. So I thought it was really interesting to see that happening, especially since it's going to northern Vietnam as well. Well, of course, I think we see that there has been some retrenchment from global manufacturers in Vietnam because of softening Western demand, right? So it's interesting to see because on one hand, they're having this huge investment from Foxconn. But on the other hand, more recently, they just had 45,000 people laid off because Samsung, Apple, and Google manufacturers unfortunately had to lay off some folk because of softening Western demand for electronics. So I thought it was interesting. Let's kind of like switch to Indonesia, which you just mentioned. So the Ministry of Trade for Indonesia announced last week that they will restrict sales of imported goods priced below 100 USD per unit, air quotes, on digital marketplaces. And that air quote marketplaces on digital platforms will also have to seek permits and pay taxes like small businesses. So this obviously comes from both Tech in Asia as well as Joel Shen, who's I think a great LinkedIn writer. And I just got quote unquote Joel from this from his perspective here. He says here that the allegations are a response to ByteDance's alleged plans to sell and promote its uh, TikTok products and to prevent online marketplaces from selling inexpensive goods made, for example, in China. And then he says that ByteDance has denied they opened this cross-border business that will compete with you know small, medium enterprises in Indonesia. Yeah, Shuyen, your thoughts? I think this is pretty similar to legislation in India. And so essentially, I think you're trying to regulate some of this low cost, low value cross-border stuff. And it's a transfer essentially to local businesses. So I think Indonesians will end up paying more for these low cost goods. And then I think Indonesia hopes to be able to tax basically the import of these things more effectively. Not totally surprising. Yeah, I think it's part of the wave of protectionism. I think a lot of these policies obviously have started to come out. I think India, like you said, has had a previous one. They've also recently done an export ban on rice, which also has a net transfer of wealth and consumer surplus dynamic that's there. So I think at least for me, my perspective is that who are benefits and who does not benefit. So obviously, I think the people who do not benefit, for example, would be TikTok by Dance, which is an e-commerce platform that has previously done that TikTok shop and sale of these Chinese goods in China. So they were successful in that strategy. So they would not be able to play out their strategy. That's one. Two, obviously, is that I think a lot of Chinese manufacturers obviously don't benefit because they no longer or will have to go through additional regulatory hurdles in order to sell. Uh, thirdly, is e-commerce platforms selling cheap stuff that you know is high value to the buyer is actually a great way to drive giveaways, drive traffic, you know, drive interest. So I think there's also marketplaces will also lose ground a little bit because of this. But I think who are the winners in top of my head? I think small, medium manufacturers in Indonesia will benefit in this. So maybe the domestic workforce that's associated with that will also benefit. But also I think another thing I think about would be, interestingly, there could be some e-commerce enablers or middlemen who basically are buying these goods, maybe in a right, you know, have the regulatory licensing, etc. These middlemen will benefit to some extent because the demand will still be there. So I think questions is who gets a license and so, so forth. So that's how I think about who benefits, who doesn't benefit from this. No, I think you're spot on. Oh, I forgot. Indonesian consumers who are looking to buy unfortunately you know, pay higher prices. prices. Yeah, they're going to pay higher prices because you want hair clips, you want stapler. These are all small items that obviously you want the cheapest version of it and that gives you more purchasing power to do other things with your life. So I think it's an interesting dynamic for sure. I was you know, reading about the Indian export ban on rice, which was actually like the inverted version of that, which is that India is a supplier of rice, but a lot of the best rice, a lot of rice goes to the rest of the world. I thought it was interesting for me. I was reading another article by Marginal Revolution and he was just walking through it and saying like, hey, you know, who benefits? To some extent, you know, 
know, Indian consumers benefit because now if you can't export the rice, I think the prices will drop. But then Indian rice producers lose because now they're no longer able to earn as much. And because they don't have the ability to export as much, they don't have the profits needed to reinvest in productivity for rice. And so less rice will be produced over time as well, but enough to still have lower prices for Indian consumers. So I think it's an interesting like the dynamic. Malaysian durians. What, why are you, sorry, do you say durians? Oh no, the best durians in Malaysia get exported to China and Singapore. Oh, you made me panic that you suddenly were telling me there's a durian export ban. <laughs> I'll be like, me and Nir Ayel will panic and say, okay. No, I, I think what I meant was, yeah, Malaysian durians. I mean, I think that's the fundamental dynamic for globalization, right? I think the big trade here is, hey, you know, we have this industry, local consumers get lower prices because of the net investments and profits that we have from export. It reminds me of like going to Sri Lanka and then, you know, Sri Lankan crabs are very popular in Southeast Asia, especially Singapore. Yeah. All the best crab gets exported to Singapore. Yeah, because of the direct flights and because of everything, the logistics. So it's hard to get really great Sri Lankan crab in Sri Lanka. Except I just got some good invites. Apparently some people still managed to get some. So apparently there's a company called Ministry of Crab that I was just uh, recommended. So looking forward to trying it out next time. So yeah, when you think about all these policies and regulations, what do you think about it? Positive? fan, not a fan, what do you think about it? It's a hard question. I mean, I think from a principles perspective, I'm generally not a fan of protectionism because mm -hmm. I don't think it helps people compete effectively. But I think if you're a big country like India or China and you want to try to provide some sort of ground for your local companies to try to get to a size where they can be stronger, like you don't want them to be pulverized before they can actually effectively compete. I can sort of see the logic there. The question is whether they actually do get strong enough to compete globally or they can only succeed with that type of protection and they never become sort of world beaters. So I'm, I'm a little conflicted. Yeah, I think what's definitely true is, you know, growing up in an age where I think globalization, the world is flat, felt like inevitable, felt like we'll keep going to have less and less trade barriers and less protectionism over time. It almost feels like an era ago right now. There used to be stories, right? It's like, oh, well, you know, the WTO would be pushing hard for more free trade. Those days are seem to be gone. Yeah, I mean, I think the endlessly positive stories of, the 90s and early thousands are not playing out, right? Because yeah. their free trade disproportionately negatively impacts certain segments of society. Right. And so then the question is like, is the right way to protect them through protectionism or is there a different way to kind of reap the benefits of trade but also ensure redistribution to those impacted groups more effectively yeah I think I was reading an interesting article about how like the rise of the Chinese middle class has come from a substitution for a lot of that wealth that went to the Midwest and the US for industrial production manufacturing so I thought it was an interesting kind of like articles reading obviously he didn't just go to China he went to Vietnam went to Southeast Asia as well a lot of these jobs a lot of these production output so I just feel like I'm still formulating my thoughts on how that plays out for technology because I think technology and startups you always need to have market size you need to have different access to different markets and protectionism generally restricts the market size there although of course regulation may not yet exist to regulate your category if you're building it in a new category yeah I mean I think you'll have to see like I guess the Indians are at the forefront of this right which is do the Indian marketplaces then as a result of this protectionism gain in strength and become significant outside of India right then you'll know need that there's to be? a benefit I mean maybe it's big enough right you know look at the Chinese marketplaces they seem to be happy with the size that they have, right? I guess, but there's a limit to that, right? I mean, that's why they're all in Southeast Asia running around, right? <laughs>
I mean, well, you know. Ali is here, right? JD is here. Like, they're all trying to expand their markets, right? So I yeah. don't know if you can just say, hey, like, as long as you conquer India, that's enough. Yeah. I think what's interesting is Southeast Asia still generally feels like it's been more open, I would say. It feels like in terms of policies in general. So I think the Indonesia one feels like the first major policy, I feel like, has been announced in Southeast Asia. I haven't really seen anything from Vietnam or from Singapore that has done a lot. So this is why I think it's noteworthy in the sense that if you and I were talking about another US protectionist legislation is like which one but in Southeast Asia it feels like this is the first major one that's come up and I wonder if is this a what portent of more legislation to come down the pipe I think people will watch right and we'll see what the impact of it is yeah the good news is that it's still under negotiation so for Indonesia law right I think everyone's still figuring out how it works and how exactly it's implemented and who gets to qualify who doesn't get to qualify I think implementation is going to be a challenge I think Joel raised a good point which is like $100 per unit what define a unit is it per SKU per crate per pallet Devils um, in the details, right? Devils in the details. Yeah, imagine if some poor issue yeah. licenses. I think that's also another opportunity for sort of graft shenanigans. Yeah, I think they mentioned that in the public release. Their primary point of view was that they wanted to do this as well as to make sure there's import taxes. But I think it's interesting that they chose to go approach this with a licensing approach rather than enforcing import tax. So um, yeah, I think it'll be interesting times. Uh, I'm sure a lot of people especially in e-commerce and supply chain in Asia is kind of like thinking through all the ramifications of this as well. Yeah, well, if you have any listeners who have an inside view on this, we invite you to shoot us a note. We'd love to get some inside scoop. Yeah, for sure. Uh, on that note, to wrap things up here, when you look at the upcoming week, Shane, anything you're excited or looking forward to? Oh my gosh. Well, I guess next week is National Day for the Singaporeans. And so yeah. we can look forward to Air Force jets, parachuters, <laughs> dramatic scenes of how we, there was a time when people said that Singapore <laughs> would make it but we did and the re-release of Kit Chan's home so yeah it's really funny when we first moved back my wife was like oh you know in the US every little town has its 4th of July parade and it's right. little fireworks display and she's yeah. like oh it's just like you took all those tens of thousands of towns and put all the budget into one parade oh. one fireworks you know so everything yeah. is gigantic and massive yeah, 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 yeah. so yeah I mean I always kind of look forward to it and I think it is it's interesting to think about what are the stories we tell ourselves about who we are as a nation and where we're headed, especially because we're a young country. Yeah. Um, and so uh, I always enjoy National Day, even though it's like pretty cheesy. You got to like lean into the cheese. Lean to the cheese. What are you looking uh, forward to, Jeremy? You know, I am just looking, I like, I'm such a nerd, but I lined up a bunch of like AI brainstorming sessions, <laughs> air quotes, with founder friends. And we're just kind of like doing a bunch of speculation stuff. And it's less about like, oh, some of it obviously is more like what's happening now, what things can be built now. But I'm also doing this for fun. It's like I'm writing this like, I hate to say this, but this minor sci-fi plot narrative. Like what does stuff look like in the next 50 to 100 years if all these technologies happen? So if you have LLMs that are effectively, you know, replicas you like, of human Is this fiction? You're writing a, like a novel? I don't want to say it. This is not the way. But yes, over a late night party last week, a friend's birthday party, I ended up sketching a trilogy of plot points with technology sci-fi okay that not, but whether I will publish or not and make no promises it was just but it was just a fun exploration of like that's cool yeah, you yeah, totally yeah, should yeah. it takes a lot of discipline to write a book though yeah yeah but I thought the I thought it was interesting because I was just like thinking through some of the stuff and I was like you know what all the almost every science fiction novel has the concept of AI which assumes they're conscious but almost no sci-fi has a form of AI that's effectively a language model to some extent. 
these peculiarities because it's such a new novel approach. So there isn't that separation between are you a robot versus are you a robot who's conscious versus are you a robot that we believe is conscious but effectively is just programmatic language. Anyway, that's just So you're like a the... glitchy robot, you're saying. Oh, I'm just <laughs> saying that humans are very good. I mean, it's like I was like walking in the forest late at night on a military exercise and I was like sleep deprived and I look at a tree and I saw a baby in there because I was so sleep deprived. I mean, the human brain is designed to see faces and personality and consciousness. So it's not glitchy. The robot is designed to just communicate and provides programming, but humans imbue mm. empathy. Humans are empathy machines. And so we can't help, but if... You, look you like anthropomorphize. You anthropomorphize. Yeah, we anthropomorphize robots. And I think there's an interesting... Di- anyway, that's one of my sci-fi slash plot points in the whole thing. And I'm just curious. Because it's not a... It's not... It's a fine distinction that's only kind of emerged, honestly, over the past 10 years. Oh, well, I can't wait to read a first draft, Jeremy. You know what? I will share it with you, but I'm not going to share it over the podcast. I'll be just too embarrassed. This is what I think the future is going to happen. Awesome. Well, on that note, All see right. you next week, Shein. See you next week. Take it easy. Thank you for listening to Brave. If you enjoyed this episode, please share the podcast with your friends and colleagues. We would also appreciate you leaving a rating or review. Head over to www.bravesea.com for member content, resources, and community. Stay well and stay brave. Stay brave.